Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two under two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. And welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. And today I have on Dia Lu. If you were at Level Up Your Listing Summit, she was on our real estate investors panel with Avery Carl and Sarah Robinson. And I'm so happy to have her on the podcast today. We've been trying to get this secured for months. And she is the first guest ever I'm having on to talk about boutique motels and hotel investing. So Dia, can you walk us through a little bit of your story, how you started investing in motels and hotels, and sort of demystify this, make it like approachable for anyone listening who wants to do this themselves? Yeah, I guess I started out with short-term rental investing. I was working as a patent litigation attorney in New York when I decided that I really wanted to pursue much more financial independence track. And so I moved back to Austin. I worked there as an attorney for two years while you were starting to build my real estate portfolio. And I basically went all in on short-term rentals. And so I, I bought nine short-term rentals by myself while I was working as a lawyer. And then I quit my job in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic and basically started to figure out what my next step was. And at the time, I was looking around and more and more people were getting into short-term rentals. The rates and were the prices for short-term rentals were going up. And I realized that maybe eventually I should do something else as well to diversify a little bit in case there's more competition in the short-term rental space. And maybe I, I need to look elsewhere as well. And meanwhile, I was selling some of my short-term rentals because the market had went gone way up. And I was able to get really good offers on a lot of my properties that already had over a year of financials on them. And so I was trying to sell them based on financials. And some of these worked and some of these, well, the appraisal obviously did not come in based on the financials, came back based on the sales comps of the surrounding properties. And I was really frustrated because some of these properties were making six figures. And, you know, and it was still compared to the other properties next door to it that were not cash flowing at all, did not have any furniture, did not have a business in place at all, did not have future bookings. And so I started looking at hotels mostly because I wanted to buy something that was based on the valuation of the business. And I knew that for commercial assets, the the valuation of a property is based on the actual book of business. And so I looked more into hotels initially thinking that it was going to be very, very similar to short-term rentals. It was just a little bit bigger. I was very mistaken, honestly, because there's so many differences between hotels, motels versus short-term rental. But that's kind of how I got started. And I just started really looking around for deals and trying to 
buying deals across the USA. I probably made offers on at least 20 plus hotels, gotten under contract on many, many hotels before buying my first one. And I was able to lock down seller financing with a 48 key hotel in the Ozarks. And that's how we closed on our first hotel. Amazing. I'm really glad you touched on that detail about how when you're working with commercial assets, they are actually judged on the valuation, like what the business is bringing in versus when you're dealing with residential. And that's one thing I've heard a lot of hosts say who are just doing short-term rentals, like, oh, if I ever need to sell the property, I can sell it for even more than it's actually appraised for because I can sell it as a business. And I found that people really are not willing to pay that much more for that. Even if you can show you're bringing in extra, it just, at the end of the day, like the bank wants to know that it's secured against the house and that's it. And so I think it's interesting that you kind of discovered that and that's was sort of your push into like commercial assets instead. Can you go into a little more details on how you got the financing for this 46 unit deal in the Ozarks? Did you do this solo by selling some of your properties or did you have partners going into this? From the, from the very beginning, we had had, you know, partners into deals just because okay. already at the time had a pretty sizable Facebook group called Airbnb Professional Hosts. And so from that, we were able to raise the money, a large chunk of the money, rather. We still put some of our own money in, but a large chunk of the money for renovations and et cetera, we were able to raise that money. And so basically, we put together a joint venture agreement and raise the money and close on our first hotel. So now we have, well, we have a fund for buying hotels. So now we're raising money on a much larger scale using 506C fund. Okay. Can you explain a little bit what that is and how, if anyone's listening, how they could either contribute to your fund or how people can set up their own? Yeah. So we started a 506C fund called the Welcome Capital Fund to buy short-term rentals and hotels across the USA. And by 506C, I just mean that we are able to talk about it on podcasts such as this one. We're able to talk about it on social media. We're not limited just to friends and family, but in exchange, we are only able to take accredited investors' money for our investment. So if anyone has any questions about the Welcome Capital Fund, they can always reach out to me on uh, social media, on Instagram, at DiaESQ. But in terms of how to start a fund, that's a pretty complicated discussion, but Really, I feel like a lot of folks have to build a track record first to fundraise. So we were able to build a track record first with the short-term rentals that I had in my personal portfolio. And at the point that I started raising money for hotels, I had uh, owned at one point, not necessarily at that exact moment, I had owned at one point at least 20 short-term rentals across five different markets. So I had a lot of short-term rentals to show for it. And then for the hotel, I will say that the first one was always the hardest to raise just because, you know, it's your first hotel deal. So it's still going to be a little bit different than your first short-term rental deal or your your 10th short-term rental deal. And so, but luckily we we're able to raise that and build a track record for, for that. And because we bought it for 750 and we put about 500 into it and within eight months, it appraised for $2 million dollars. We're able to use that as our track record to kind of show our investors what is the art of the possible 
if we're able to buy deals at significant discounts relative to the, the market pricing. So a lot of our strategies, it's kind of like, hey, like, yes, we are better operators in average, but we don't necessarily have to be. Like, we can just buy a hotel significantly below value and a market value and then operate it. And even based on market average assumptions, we're able to double the valuation of the property or at least double the money invested into the deal. That's amazing. And how long did it take you to do the renovations? You said you put about 500,000 into it and it was 46 units, this one in the Ozarks. Yeah. How how long did that take? So we... The whole refinancing from from going from 750K to $2 million took about eight months. The renovation took a little bit less. It just kind of took us a while to plan out our renovation and get started. But but yeah, it took, I would say, like six months. We did not renovate all 40. It's 48, but we turned it into, I think, 46 now because we combined some of the rooms. Uh, but so, yeah, we didn't renovate every single room yet. So there are still some economy rooms, basically, that are a lot more dated. But now we have pretty much luxury vacation rental type cat larger residences. We also have ups, what's considered upscale offerings or upper mid-scale offerings, hotel rooms. And then we also have the economy rooms all in one hotel brand. So... Could you tell some of the differences besides the fact that it's bigger and you're dealing with way way more rooms? What are some of the things that you have to account for when you start working on a hotel and managing that versus a standard short-term rental? Pros and cons, I guess. Yeah, I I will have to say that I'm not on the operations part of our Mm. properties. My very talented business partner, Mike, he is our operations person. I'm normally responsible for finding the right deals, raising the money, and putting together the capital stack for our deals and negotiating contracts and et cetera. But I will say that the largest part that's different from short-term rentals is that this is running a business and there's going to be full-time employees. And and therefore, you're not just hiring this out to a co-hosting or short-term rental management company anymore. I think a lot of people still think that they can just run it to where it's 100% remote, 100% contactless, mm-hmm. and there's nobody on site for something as big as 48 Key Hotel. It's going to be very, very difficult to do that. We can absolutely use a lot of technology to reduce our number of staff. We can absolutely use VAs and other types of help to reduce the number of staff that's required on site. But at the end of the day, running a 48-key hotel requires a lot of guest interaction and guest expectation is that there's going to be someone on site to help. And you're basically going to have to understand how to manage a team of people when you're managing a hotel. So, and then the other thing is just like everything about acquisitions is going to be totally different than going out, finding a realtor and buying a house. In a better way or <laughs> I know it's it's different. I guess it's hard to compare, but like what are kind of some of the things you ran into when it came to buying commercial? Like what did the bank want to see? It was really just the track record that you had established or like did they want certain work experience or I don't know, like what exactly like goes into funding the deal for this that makes it different? 
I guess it really depends on the deal size, right? So for like a 19-unit hotel, which is, by the way, I'm in one of our ugliest rooms right now at our 19-unit <laughs> hotel. So, but for a 19-unit hotel, it's we didn't really go to the bank. We just went to the seller. We got a no, and gotcha. it was relatively uneventful to close it. Aside from the fact that I don't think the seller would have financed us if we didn't have other hotels and we didn't talk okay. about operations with him. Like we, you know, Mike really bonded with the owner and, you know, talking about working different OTAs and stuff like that and just understanding how the bookings come in and et cetera, really put the owner at ease for seller financing this to us for the next few years. And I don't think that we would have been able to do that had we not already owned our house. When it comes to banks, they really do require prior experience a lot of times, which is kind of like a chicken and the egg problem, I guess, because you have to have hotel experience to own a hotel. (laughs) Well, how do I get started? And so, yeah, so you usually require experience in the hotel space and, and also your personal net worth. You and your business partners has to add up to at least the value of the loan. It might have to be more depending on how rough the asset is. But if you're buying a $6 million hotel, then you, everyone who's, you know, co-signing on the note, their mm. has to add up to $6 million. Okay. That's some of the differences, but it really depends. Like this week, we were just talking to our franchise attorney about liquidation damages. If we were able to break a franchise brand and deflag it, you know, and how much that would be, what are actual damages if they the brand can't find a replacement hotel, you know, and what kind of brand requirements are there if we were to keep it as a Marriott or Hilton or whatever. And, you know, there's a lot of different types of considerations. I don't think, I, I never would have imagined, I guess, as a short-term rental operator, like I never imagine like, wow, it costs like half a million dollars to potentially break a franchise agreement. I never thought of that. Or like, wow, like, you know, these are the, uh, you know, you have to, if you are buying a Marriott, you, 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 either you you work with a vendor that already has Marriott ex- under their portfolio, or you don't get to buy your Marriott because wow. you don't buy your Marriott hotels. So it doesn't matter if you have prior hotels or not, right? So there's a lot of additional requirements because now you are dealing with folks who are trained in hospitality. They went to school for hospitality. They have fancy degrees for hospitality. And I think a lot of times when you're in the short-term mental space, you're just dealing with other folks just like you who may have a day job, who may never had any sort of hospitality experience prior to starting a short-term mental. And they're just starting in the last few years. It's a very different world when you're in the hotel space because a lot of people have years of experience, mm-hmm. whether they're tra- formal training, whether their family already owned hotels when they were little or whatever else. Okay, that's that's really, that's a lot to consider that I hadn't thought of. So far, have you purchased, have any of your hotel deals been franchised hotels or you're just now for the first time possibly dealing with this? We just purchased a 76 unit Wyndham hotel and we okay. negotiated with Wyndham to deflag the hotel in about 15 months after closing. So we technically right now own a franchise hotel and we're operating it as a Wyndham. And it's doing very well. I mean, we we like working with brands. It's just that we like to do our own thing. So we always like to see what is our of the possible, so to speak. 
to figure out what what the we're going to be on the hook for if we do break the franchise agreement. So, you know, in this case, it was a much easier break of that relationship versus if we were to some of the other hotels we were looking at, there were over half a million dollars of liquidated damages. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I didn't negotiate that separation. I'd love to know, like, what's the discussion kind of behind the scenes with your team on choosing to stay under the Wyndham brand or leaving it behind? Because I imagine that there's some perks, like it's easier to get booked and they have a whole entire, um, you know, the Wyndham brand and and people are booking through there and might have travel memberships through there or travel points they've accumulated versus going on your own. Are you able to like retain more of the income by going on your own? Like what's sort of the the discussion happening behind the scenes with that? I will say that I don't really want to speak for my team, but I will say for me, I have always wanted to do boutique hotels and independent hotels. And the rationale for that is because I don't want to pay the franchise fee for 10 to, you know, sometimes as much as 17%. That's on top of OTA fees. So mm-hmm. that's why it's not. So even if you're getting a booking from Expedia, you're still paying the brand franchise fees on top of the Expedia fees, right? So it's a lot of fees and that's a large mm-hmm. chunk of your revenue right off the top. Another thing about brands is that they have very strict requirements about how many staff that you have on site relative to number of guests, relative to mm-hmm. number of rooms. They have very strict requirements about what amenities this type of offering has. So it doesn't mix, it doesn't matter if nobody in your town, in your actual locale is using the business center at all. But because this this particular offering from this particular brand has a requirement that you must have X number of computers or, you know, you're still going to have to completely renovate that every single X number of years and et cetera. So if the brand requirements change, then and you know they go a different design direction, that you're going to get hit with a property improvement plan. There's a lot of things that you have to do uh, relative to the brand, and of course, the trade-off is that's why people go to Marriott and Hilton because they know if I go to Hilton in Thailand, if I go to Hilton here in the U.S., there are going to be similarities that I can expect. And it's always going to be X, Y, Z, right? I can always use like points. I can always expect steady Wi-Fi. I can always expect room service. I can always expect, you know, cleaning every right. single day. That's exactly why people are willing to pay more for those kind of brands. But the trade-off is that the costs are going to be more. So it just really depends on the personal situation. I can't really say like yay or nay on franchises. I just say that, For me personally, we just like to build our own boutique brand. And so that's what our direction is. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So I'd like to know for anybody who's just starting out and looking for their first hotel or motel deal, would you recommend starting with a franchise brand or look for like a mom and pop place to buy out? I would say probably look for a mom and pop place. I, I, I mean, I think that it's it's going to be hard to buy a 76-unit hotel to start and qualify that, you know, in front of a bank. Yeah. Especially right now, given the current environment, you know, if the economy was in a different direction, then I think that more banks are willing to overlook certain things like relative to the asset performance, relative to 
related, I mean, related to the asset performance, related to the actual operator, et cetera. But because the economy is the way it is right now, I think more banks are going to be much more cautious in terms of exactly what kind of, you know, cash flow that property is bringing in and also what your experience is. And so I think it's infinitely easier to buy something a little bit smaller for your first property. I would love to know what you personally look for. And I guess what you're looking for today is very different than what you looked for with your first deal. Maybe could you walk us through for somebody who's just starting out and wants to get into this, what would you look for in a first deal as far as like location, number of bedrooms, close to certain attractions or anything like that? I don't know. Could you like walk us through your thought process with this? Yeah, I will say that I still look for the same in terms of location, I see the same kind of deals. It's just bigger now. So I've always looked for drive drivable locations within three hours from major booming towns. So what is two to three hours from Austin or Dallas or Denver or Atlanta or Raleigh? You know, I know those towns, their population always growing. And okay. therefore the tourism destinations or the touristy destinations that around them that are quick drive away from them are going to be growing in the near future. And that's not data that you can necessarily get from, you know, past past looking data. Like a lot of the data sources out there are looking backwards. This is requiring some sort of common sense to be like, hey, forward looking, what do I expect to grow in the next five years? So I've always that whether it's my first short-term rental or 10 short-term rental or our fifth hotel, I will say in terms of property size for someone that's starting out, I normally would say up to 20 doors, but it's not a must because we bought 48 for 750K and that was a no-brainer to us because of okay. the price point, because it was in really good condition. And, you know, we knew that even if we were bad at renovating, the rooms are already operational and we can just operate it as an ugly hotel except put it on <laughs> So, you know, like I, I always look at deals where we can still make money and increase the valuation by a lot, even if we are mediocre. You know, we don't want to be mediocre. I always tell people like, I don't want to be mediocre, but if the deal still makes a lot of money, even if we were, then that's something I want to buy. Okay. That's, that's, I feel like the biggest problem I, a lot of people run into, whether it's short-term rentals or hotels, is that they overpay for the property. And because they just see so much potentials, they let their mm-hmm. emotions get involved. They think it's super cute or they can make it super cute. They don't really run their numbers conservatively. They didn't anticipate the interest rates going up. They didn't anticipate that they can't cash out refinance. They didn't really think about all these other extra strategies. I'm always trying to buy significant market. And if I can't buy a short-term rental for significant bill of market, then I'm going to look at hotels and I'm not going to buy the short-term rental then. And that's just kind of how I always have operated. And so I will say buying something to where you know, even if you are not going to put hundreds of thousands of dollars of renovation into it, it's still going to make money. That's very important. 
And I wish that it, when I started, that that's exactly the metrics that I use to start because I looked at some really ugly hotels and that would have required so much, so much renovation to even get it to where it's cash flowing. Nowadays, I would never even take a second glance at those. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. So you kind of like to know, like as a baseline, like you, I love the way you phrased it. Like you don't try to be mediocre, but if the property was mediocre, would it still do okay? I think that's a really good like way to do it. So if you get tied up with funds and you can't renovate, you know, at least you can still continue renting it. It's been renting even as a mediocre place. I like your thought process with that. I'd love to know a little bit about what numbers you look for. So with short-term rentals, we've all heard that 20% cash on cash is kind of what investors are looking for. Is that the same with a hotel deal? Uh, Because we work with investors, it has to be a lot more because we are returning our investors some their capital. You know, like let's say if we're trying to meet the metric of at least doubling their money every five years or so, then of course it has to be the deal itself has to support both giving us a profit as well as making sure that our investors have that profit. And then on top of that, it has to have a certain for errors and uncertainties in the market. So it's going to have to be a lot better deal if you are raising money than if you're looking for the exact same deal for your personal purpose. So a lot of the deals that we buy as part of our fund is basically, I would say a lot, what a lot of people will probably say unicorn deals. And so it takes a lot of search to do. So as an example, the the hotel that we just closed on, it's a 2008 construction, meaning that right off the bat, I know that electrical and plumbing is probably fine for the next few years. There's not going to be any large surprises compared to if I buy something from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And two, it's it's already making over $1 million of gross revenue as of last year. And so if we're able to buy it for $3.6 million, I know that day one, even though it's not fully optimized, I can make money. Okay. Three, based on the market comps, I already knew that this hotel would be easily worth over $6 million. And and that's what ultimately swayed my team to, you know, buy this at auction. I, I had to convince everyone on my team, like, this is a really good deal, guys. And I just knew that it was going to be a significant discount relative to market. So it appraised by CBRE for $6.5 million as is. So day one, when we close, we basically already made our investors $2.9 million just, just by closing wow. this deal. Now, Why did they sell for that price? You said that you purchased it for three point six. Yeah, because, because they probably bought it for $1 or $2 million a long time ago. And they are, you know, they, they don't want either... A lot of hotel owners, they sell for two reasons. One, because the interest rates are about to reset for double what their original notes are. Normally, the bridge debt is for around five years, plus or minus, for hotels. So every five years, the rates reset. And then, uh, oh. I would say like 30% of the rates that are resetting this year for commercial rate is hotels and motels, relative to, I think, 20% for multifamily. So I didn't know that was a thing. Okay. Cause with like a single family home or whatever, you just, whatever 
interest rate you get locked in for a 15-year mortgage, 30-year mortgage, like that's it unless you decide to refinance. But with hotels, they just automatically reset every five to 10 years, you said? It depends on what kind of financing, but oftentimes that's what commercial real estate rates are. It it kind of depends on what kind of financing you're getting with your bank. But a lot of times people resell because of the interest rates. A lot of hotel loans are based on the Wall Street Journal prime rate. So that's at two point that's at eight point two five right now. And that was oh, that's high. That oh was my gosh. Three. Oh, oh, you know, like at the beginning of last year, I think. So so you know, like a lot oh, of people wow. they might not finance if they don't have really great commer- you know, income showing mm-hmm. it. And your the the loans are based on the DSCR, then you're you're not gonna qualify for refinancing. And then some other folks just sell because they're larger as institutional funds, and they are have already made their money, and they are not in the business of renovating hotels. So whenever they get hit by the brands, the oh. franchise brands, or property improvement plans, they have to sell because. Well, and they don't have to sell, but they have already made their money and they don't really want to, you know, have a hotel in renovation stage. So they okay. just, so, I mean, there's a lot of different motivations for selling at a discount, but we were just able to get a really good deal at an auction and you just never know what happens with auctions. I bid all the time on auctions and sometimes I get a really good deal. Sometimes I have to stop bidding because it went too high. So I'm I'm just going to sit back. How does it work with an auction? Like if you're, you know, you didn't know that it would land on, I think you said 3.6 million. So did you talk to your team first before the auction and secure like a certain amount going into it? Or are you out there bidding for what you think is right? And then if you land like if you win you have to go to your team and be like okay we have to pay for this now like how does that work i i would say that i probably had since i'm tasked with acquisitions i mean i i've started a team so i built my team around being able to support you know different types of roles right so i kind of because i built the team i guess i gave myself the role of acquisitions but uh, so to answer your question for this other hotel I didn't let people know that I was bidding, but I didn't really, I didn't discuss with what the feeling or, you know, whatever is until after the fact to kind of see, hey, is this a deal that we want to take on as part of Welcome uh, Capital Fund or not? But I knew that I had a hunch that it was going to land under $4 million in terms of the final price. And I knew that if I was able to get it for around that price, it would be a very good deal for us just based on all the due diligence that we did up front. So. Okay. How are you, is there like a certain metric, like an amount to spend per room with the purchase and with the remodel? I know in your first deal, it was 750K for 48 units. This one was 3.6 mil for 76 units. So much higher. Where is the like, decision making in that like to spend that much more per room in terms of condition really and also cash flow i mean it just depends on where the locations are where what the conditions of the rooms are and and whether there's cash flow or not for the first hotel it wasn't in as a big market as the the second the one that we just talked about 
It was also an older building, a 1980s construction. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there was almost no financials. I mean, the the owner, it were close to retirement age. And so even though they did a really great job in maintaining the property and making it really super clean and, you know, not a huge amount of deferred maintenance, they still really just patch a lot of stuff, you know, and and basically it it's still a 1980s building. It doesn't matter how much you fix it. It's still going to have more issues than a 2008 building. Right. And so we, I also use CoStar and other data analytics tools to understand what the hotel will appraise for. I also talk to a lot of hotel appraisers to kind of understand how they approach hotel appraisals. And so a lot of times I will have hour-long conversations with appraisers to kind of understand the market data, to understand the rationale for the appraisal report, so that the next time I approximate how much this hotel is worth for auction or for our offer, because we always offer what we think we want to pay, not what the list price is, we now we know, right? So I have to understand what, what banks will appraise this hotel as. And that's why I have a lot of conversations with local banks and appraisers. Okay. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about design. What do you account for with designing boutique hotels? Are you trying to do themed hotels, like if they're in a certain attraction area or a tourist destination playing off the theme? Or do you prefer like more timeless designs, I guess? And then follow up with that. How do you execute designs in that when you're doing that many units? Like, do you try to make each room different or are they all pretty standardized? Like, walk us through that process a little bit. So for for our smaller hotels, we can do more theme rooms. So the smallest hotel that we have is 13 units. And that one's more like a traditional short-term rental that are just set 13 separate short-term rentals that are 13 different... With no days. front desk, like no staff for that one. Like it operates more like STR. Yeah. Okay. But that one is just too small to have a full-time staff, right, on site. So it is going to be operated closer to 13 separate short-term rentals. The one that I'm sitting in right now, some the room, all, every single of the 19 units have a slightly has a slightly different configuration and furnishing because it's a 1950s hotel. So there's just like, there was a plumbing theme room when we took it over. Like they they have plumbing plumbing themed. It just had like, like there was a plaque that it's kind of like the one sitting behind the AC on top of the AC, except there was a tile plaque and it just said like plumbing aisle 52 or something. And, and then it had plumbing pipes as that what looks like plumbing pipes for the curtain rod and stuff like that. And then we had a fishing theme room. It was like, <laughs> your fishing theme room? And and then and then we just had so many random art that just didn't really make sense. So um, there really wasn't a way to make every single room cohesive anyway. It can't be the same room type, even if we tried, just because everything was slightly different in terms of the room size, in terms of the configuration. So for this particular hotel... It's going to be a hybrid between short-term rental units and hotel units. 
And okay. we're just actually having a conversation on whether some of the hotel units will only be listed on Airbnb and direct booking sites and not on booking.com, et cetera, just because, for example, we have a two-bedroom, one-bath house. And it's just going to be really hard to map that onto booking.com Expedia because we can't charge cleaning there. And, mm-hmm. and then so if we raise the price, that's the nightly rate to account for like cleaning fees, then it's going to be too high on Airbnb. So it creates a mapping problem. And so those kind of issues kind of run pop up when you're trying to operate a hotel that just has many different types of rooms. Some some might just be on Airbnb in the near future, and some will be on all the different platforms, plus our direct booking platform. And because of that, every single design, going back to design, we're talking about design. Uh, oh, this uh, is so interesting. Uh, Take any yeah, tangent you want. <laughs> yeah, I, I realize I went on a totally different tangent. So Going back to design, it is going to be all green and gold and black theme rooms because it's called the Cedarwood Inn. So I figured that okay. having a plant or green theme is good for our brand. And it also complements the warm wood tones that we have in a lot of the rooms. And then we do have some rooms that we're going to keep more of a rustic cabin vibe and we're not going to have a much more contemporary vibe just because some of the people who are coming to the Blue Ridge are that more rustic vibe anyway. And then we have some rooms that have beautiful green and gold gilded wallpaper and, you know, really, really cool beds and et cetera. So they're just a lot more contemporary in, in the, but applying the same color theme. And so it just, so that's kind of the the theme rooms that we went in terms of theme rooms. It's just a color theme there. Okay. And then in terms of our larger hotels, we are a lot more cohesive in our design plan across all sure. of them. And so for the 76 unit, we are just test renovating two of the rooms that were offline anyway, and seeing what kind of finishes we want for those rooms and what kind of furniture we want after we do that. We are going to communicate with overseas case companies that basically just design hotel case goods. And they basically will custom make all the furniture overseas and they will ship it to you at a bulk discount. So that's actually how a lot of the larger hotels do things. They're not going on the traditional vendor sites that I'm sure short-term rental folks are familiar with. Instead, they are going to these large case good companies that are familiar with not just independent hotels, but also the brand approved looks like what is Marriott state, you know, like, I, I don't know, like some, some sort of Marriott brand <laughs> over here. What does that look look like? And then what does this look look like? There's certain approved furniture. Right. Well, these companies are very familiar with those things. And they're also able to work with your custom design. So that's probably the direction that we're going to go for these larger properties. I'd love to know your perspective too on like the lobby areas and gyms. And you kind of talked about having like a business center or like pools, like some of those more general amenities that people operating short-term rentals don't really have to deal with. So there are a lot of extra spaces and some of those spaces are underutilized right now. So for example, for the 19-unit hotel, we have an event space that we haven't even used. And that could be a huge source of revenue to host smaller weddings, elopements, you know, receptions, birthday parties, et cetera. 
for $1,000, $2,000, dollars a day. But in terms of gyms, right now, we really just have one hotel that has an on-site gym. So we are just going to make that gym a little bit nicer. And that's the hotel that we just acquired. A lot of the common spaces like hotel lobbies and et cetera, for the hotels where we have completely automated the check-in and check-out process, we have looked into converting the lobby space into something else. And so, for example, for this property, we have converted it into a shared living room for our hotel guests so that they can come hang in the former hotel lobby. I'm going to eventually stock the the lobby with books and board games and et cetera so that they can kind of use the space as a hangout lounge to have some coffee hang out with their fr- friends that are sitting and that are staying at the other rooms oh. and et cetera. And then we also have a lot of just shared outdoor spaces. So right now we're just putting in some fire pits and string lights and et cetera. It's just like a giant Airbnb, really, or short-term rental, just having a lot more out outside Insta- Instagrammable experiences. So it kind of just really depends on the property Right now, we can't go crazy with the hotel that we just bought just because it's still under the franchise brand. So okay. we did anything crazy, they will for sure come back and talk to <laughs> us very sternly. In the near future, we're looking at putting a lobby bar there. And then we have okay. over 50 extra parking spots. So And then also an extra 1.5 uh, buildable acres. So... Eventually, we might develop that into something really cool. We might we can even build incremental photos with a, a mixed use space on the bottom. But for now, to hold that space, we were looking at having a food truck parked there. Oh, how fun! There's so much you could do, like restaurants, you know, rooftop bars, extra things like I don't know, valet parking and stuff. Like, there's just so many like amenities that come with hotels. So I'm curious, like, if that gets budgeted in or considered or talked about in your initial when you're running numbers and talking to your team or if that's kind of something that later on as it's operating you guys might decide to add like a bar yeah there's just like so much you could do with hotels I feel like I would if it were me I feel like I'd like spend way too much money adding amenities and stuff in like that and not be able to restrain myself yeah so I will say a lot of these things are unknowns so for example if we don't know how much the event space is going to generate I don't put a number next to the gross revenue for mm-hmm. our underwriting just because if we don't know it, then it's a great, maybe eventually we'll make a lot of money. Okay. We don't want to count on that kind of situation. So for example, for the extra 1.5 acres, that's commercial zoning and the extra 50 parking spots, that's obviously a huge potential revenue generator. But because we don't know what we're doing with that lot, we don't know, we don't have any builder plans. We don't, you know, we haven't talked to the city to see what, what is the highest and best use. We just account of, we didn't really account for it at all. We just tell folks, our investors, like, hey, these financials are already amazing based on existing cash flow of the hotel. And also if we just brought this hotel operation to market, now, there is a bonus unknown question mark for the buildable lot, but we just don't know how much that's going to generate. We also have an event space that's, that hosts up to 120 people. 
but we're not going to put any value to it right now because we don't know how much that was going to generate. So if I don't know the value, I don't attribute anything to it. Uh, And, you know, you might be able to rent out a restaurant space or something like that for a thousand dollars a month to another operator. If you know that that's the market rent for a restaurant, then you can always add that in. But I don't actually add additional revenue just because a lot of times these things can cost a lot more than they bring value. So you just never know. Okay, sure. Like things with like, if you were to add like a Starbucks in your lobby and stuff, is there like things to consider? Like how how would that even work? Do you charge like you're renting the space to Starbucks, for example, or is it like a profit share model or same with a restaurant or anything you were to add like that? How does that work exactly? I am not certain on okay. those kind of things because we haven't started working with food and beverage on site. I will say that it's funny that you said Starbucks because our 76 unit hotel already, we don't own the host Starbucks, but there's already Starbucks in front of us. So we get free advertising 24 oh. seven from the Starbucks in front of us. So Okay, interesting. Okay, one of my last questions before we wrap up is like, what are your future goals? What are you trying to do? I'd also love to know if you would ever be interested in franchising your hotels and your brand? Or do you like making each one its own individual boutique thing? I feel like it would be hard to franchise when you've got places in such different markets and, you know, a place that's a fishing themed one all the way to like a rebranded Wyndham. Like how do you franchise within your own portfolio. But I'm just curious like what your goals are for you and your team as you guys continue growing. So I want to clarify that the fishing theme was what over the hotel. There's the fishing theme would not remain if it was or the plumbing theme room. Those are getting renovated into other actual normal themes, not quirky. So but it, but anyway, looking forward, our goal is to build a system and IP, so to speak of how how we manage and run and analyze these hotels. So eventually we may be able to so-called franchise that at a much lower franchise fee than let's say the competitors. So maybe we will just show other hoteliers how to run their hotels much more efficiently with 50% less staff. And these are just etc. And as long as they have certain requirements in terms of maintaining the ratings and etc., they don't necessarily have to keep up with like property improvement plans and Mm. stuff like that. But we do have to, you know, there's a lot more to it, right? Like, do we need to have a property improvement plan in place? Or do we need to have different, or do we own the asset? Or are we, you know, outsourcing that? Or does an independent franchise Z own that? So there's a lot of considerations that I'm sure is a lot more complicated than I can imagine right now. But I do want to have my own brand in the near future. But for now, we're just buying hotels as long as they are 20 to 40 plus percent below market price. Gotcha. And you're just every day like scouring. That's your full-time job on the team. Your full-time role is looking for the deals. I will say that that's a large part of my job. I also teach a hotel mastermind where I teach people how to what, how to do this and a short-term mental mastermind. And then I, I also do currently design our hotels. But I'm looking to outsource that soon, just as that's a huge time, time, you know, that's a, yeah, where it's very time consuming. Let's just put it that way. Uh, 
And in and so and then finally I raise a lot of the capital and talk to the banks. And that I would say that might be more important. And that might be just as important or more important than just finding the initial deal because closing a deal, you're I'm I'm sometimes talking to 10 different law firms in the same day. And for my law firm round comes in handy. Wow. Dia, you are so inspiring. Like, I just don't know how you managed to do all of this. Designer, coach, deal finder, capital raiser, like you just do everything and you seem to just have such a good grip on it. I'm sure there's hectic days behind the scenes, but I don't know. You seem so like graceful about everything. I'm very, very inspired by you. (laughs) There's definitely a lot of frazzle days and a lot of emergency (laughs) Starbucks runs, but yes, <laughs> I'm sure. Thank you so much for sharing everything. I How can people connect with you? I'll link this all in the show notes, but is the best way just shoot you a DM on Instagram? Yeah, that and I do have a free hotel case study that I can link as well. I'll send you yeah. that link as well. So folks, can, if they want to see what kind of deals that we're doing and different kinds of deals, different size of deals, different ways that we have financed deals, they can also find that information as well. That's wonderful. We'll definitely include that. Thank you so much. If anyone has more questions, please reach out to Dia. I just feel like we still barely scratch the service and you have so much knowledge to offer here. So yeah, congrats on all your success and I can't wait to see where it keeps going. Thank you so much for having me. And finally for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole? We have a guest who left this lovely review which we've all we've all been there and we just have to commiserate together exactly as described super nice and cozy for two people you can tell it's very well taken care of and they include a lot of nice touches like water in the fridge and instructions for laundry would definitely stay again because it was 15 to 20 minutes from everywhere we wanted to go all right great review then of course in the star rating They leave five stars in check-in, five stars cleanliness, five stars accuracy, five stars communication, and four stars in location. After just saying, would definitely stay again because it was only 15 to 20 minutes from everywhere we wanted to go, four stars in location. Love that. Here's my favorite part. There was this section where they said, included a lot of nice touches like water in the fridge and instructions for laundry. The host who posted this wrote in her caption i'm not mad just bemused also we don't even offer laundry what instructions were these people following (laughs) they're specifically pointing out thank you for leaving instructions for laundry and the host is like we we don't even offer laundry four stars in location after complimenting you just you guys again we've talked about this so many times on this podcast these four-star reviews we just we cannot let them stress us out people have serious issues like what compels somebody to specifically compliment the location and they go out of their way to give that four stars you just can't please everybody and if somebody is going to specifically call out the instructions for laundry and you don't even offer laundry what are we doing we just we got to let these things go all we can do is laugh about this one the guest here is obviously the airbnb hole but What can you do? We're just going to laugh about this one. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening and I'll see you back here next week. 
Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.